0: This is Missy Hyatt, The Walking Riot, and I say that you need to save with Conrad. Jim Ross told me, you need to go with Conrad. He'll save you money. (laughs) And he did. You guys helped me out great. When I refinanced it and paid off everything, I think my payment was only $8 more a month. I probably saved at least over $30,000. They make everything so easy for you. Go to Save with Conrad. If you want to refi your mortgage or anything with your mortgage, just go to Save with Conrad. shane douglas earlier you know when when you're trying to leave ecw and go to the wwf he's coming the opposite direction (laughs) um you know obviously he didn't have the best experience is he telling you avoid sean vince is full of they're gonna they're gonna take your polo shirt out of your check or whatever the issues (laughs) were what were his be be mindful and be wary of this what was that
1: Uh, he just it was really sour on the experience um We had that well-documented friendship going back to very early, 1986. So I started in 85, but my first training session with Danucci was January of 86. No, no, my first training session in Freedom, Pennsylvania with the other guys. Up until then, I've been training before Tommy D's independent shows when I got the ring set up in time. So I'd known Shane a long time. He was just really sour on that experience. But I also realized that he was giving me a perspective from a sour point of view. Yes, and uh, and I, I do remember that I, I thought that I should uh, we should try to get a, in that uh, cactus uh, Shane Douglas rivalry before he went to WWE, and it didn't happen. But as soon as Shane came back. <laughs> From WWE, he's like, you want to do that match? Want to do that match now? We did end up having a really good match, uh, Shane and I, uh, that set up the final match for me and Mikey, and I believe it was based around my departure to WWE, and culminated with me pre-Rock, pre-I uh, um, quit match with the Rock being handcuffed and calling out for Mikey Whipwreck. And then Mikey just waylaying me with a chair shot, belying his, you know, the size of his arms, right? Like he just people some people think I was the sickest chair shot they've seen. Because yeah. I was handcuffed, I believe I was in the figure four or something to that effect. So we did uh, I was able to do great business with uh, with ECW on my way out. Like had the type of heat as a heel that you didn't think you could get, but I was able to get by um, you know, pushing the right buttons. And, and Bruce went on to say, like, that's what sold Vince, was the abil- my ability to, to tell stories and to cut promos. I don't know if Vince had ever seen my promos, though. I see. I don't know if Vince had ever seen my promos. Because now, fast forward to when I'm doing these uh, promos, probably very early 1996, probably January 1996, I'm cutting these promos with a new character. I don't want it to just be Cactus Jack with a mask everyone seems to like them except vince and that's when i said to jimmy cornett was the guy who would break the bad news to me at that time jimmy was in the wwe office and he said vince hates the promos i thought vince loved my promos he told me he had and uh jimmy said cactus i'm not sure vince has ever seen one of your promos and i went Became real, really scared, right? Because uh, you know the mankind stuff. Maybe it was a little over the top, you know. But uh, I mean, I thought it was very moody and creative, and you know the stuff done like it was done in a dungeon. And I've got the George the Rat crawling all, all over me, which I wasn't crazy about. But I wasn't going to let it stand in the middle of a, you know, a run. Uh, so I was I was really, really concerned when I learned that Vince didn't necessarily know much about some of the people he was bringing in.
0: It's amazing to me that you think perhaps the Mankind character was a little much. So anyway, Mantar <laughs> and Damien Demento, Santa Claus, Bastion Booger, and Abe Knuckleball Schwartz and I. <laughs> I'm like, come on. That's not too much.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was... Definitely airing grievances with society. Yeah. And I was going with the, you know, the shrieking, which eventually burned my voice out. You know, the high. It was so memorable. Uh, Yeah. I thought it it was a really good way to enter. And it was surprising how few people knew. The only people who knew I was Cactus Jack was that portion of the crowd that watched WCW. WCW or ECW. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say 75% of the people had no idea who I was and that's what made the storytelling in 97 so valuable is that i was revealing things to the audience that they did not know and found astonishing
0: i, I still think you know as much as i love cactus jack and, and all that he accomplished the mankind performance yeah i mean that was you with the volume <laughs> turned all the way up the pulling the hair out one entrance music one exit me we're going to get into all that yeah. but there's so many layers to that as opposed to this guy's just a madman. Right, yeah. Well, this is a little different. This is a crazy person. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was phenomenal. So let's talk about Super Brawl. You and Max Payne team up to defeat the uh, tag team champion Nasty Boys, but it's by DQ. Uh, 12 minutes and 37 seconds is uh, the time of the
1: match. It was now, by DQ.
0: Yeah. In a,
1: in a no DQ. I thought it was a no DQ match.
0: Well, I think we're getting to oh, that. Wait, so right. Oh, wait. So we're talking this Clash Super, of the Champions. This is Super Brawl. So, oh, Super Brawl. Oh, got gotcha, you. Gotcha. Super Brawl is February. Super
1: Brawl is the one where uh, Max suplexes Nobbs. And with everything we know about the human anatomy, Nobbs' spine should have snapped in half, right? Yes. I think Arne said, thank goodness that Nobbs had the physiological makeup of a jellyfish or he would have been broken in half. You know, Max was a uh, uh, Daryl. <laughs> Peterson, great amateur wrestler, All-American for Iowa State. There was a little bit of conflict with uh, Max and and the Nasties. They they ribbed him a little bit. And so I believe they thought it was intentional or not completely unintentional. But when Max grabs knobs and you're waiting for that rotation, you're waiting for it to either be an overhead, belly to belly, or the more standard of the time, you know, uh, Steiner, belly to belly to the side. And it's kind of a combination of both. And Knobs lands front first, like on his collarbone area. It looks like he should be snapped in half. One of the uh, sickest looking bumps, and I'm not a guy who likes to watch or will watch any of the botch videos. I don't find it fun to watch Sid's leg snap in oh, half. No. You know, I don't like any of that stuff. Um, this was, could have been horrible. And thank God it wasn't. And I think Nobbs wrestled the next month with a, you know, with a pr- pretty, pretty, re- pretty, no, i say reasonable, I mean, a decent injury. I mean, pretty, a pretty badly injured arm, and he was still out there the next month.
0: How do we reconcile what you just said, that the guy who's most famous for being thrown off the cage and putting his body <laughs> through all of this tremendous torment and losing his
1: ear and all this... I can't watch it. I can't watch it. <clears throat> because I think people watch The Cell with a different frame of mind. I don't think anybody's laughing at The Cell. No. Or just watching it. To I wasn't
0: laughing when Sid broke his leg. Yeah, either, yeah.
1: I just, uh, oh, I just, I hate the word botch, you know, because it insinuates that if something's not done perfectly, like a dance routine, that something's missing. And I don't believe wrestling should look like that. And it's and, like a struggle. Yeah, and I mean, Terry Funk would specifically put in things that didn't look like they were supposed to look. He reasoned that a back body drop shouldn't always look like a work of art. You know, uh, you know, you're charging somebody, he flips you, you're gonna go ass over tea kettle, not majestically sailing. I love the majestic backdrops. That's what we all aspired to do. We all aspire to take the Harley Harley Race backdrop. For my money, the best backdrop in the business now is AJ Styles. He's he's somebody takes the backdrop that, uh, you know, makes you catch your breath backdrops very rarely used these days. And that's a shame because the only move in anyone's offensive arsenal that requires the giver to bend down is a back body drop. And yet we rarely see a back body drop, but everybody's still bending down. Wow. And getting caught with whatever move it might be. And I was like, to make it feel, to suspend belief, you've got to establish, just for the sake of it making sense threat, for all these other yeah. moves. You've got to establish the back body drop as a move that works, that people sell, that gets big pops, or else there's no reason for any of us to be bending over because there's no there's no objective to it. Yes. Have I become a cranky old man now? No,
0: and that's great. I'll be honest, I've never heard anybody talk about the importance of the backdrop yeah. and bending over, so.
1: Uh, but just going, I I got off of that tangent because I was talking about the fact that Terry didn't think everything should look right uh, perfect. And that I think, you know, my kids use oh, what a botch that was, what a botch. And when I was watching as a fan, uh, and I'm talking about 2015, 2016, uh, and I clearly, as a fan, had my favorites among the women. I didn't realize, wow, there are some powerful forces like opposing women's fans who are almost watching with glee any time someone from the opposing camp makes a mistake. Yeah. So I would see like botch, botch, botch. And I'm thinking that looks like great wrestling to me. You know, yeah. I don't want I love I do like ice dancing. You know, I like that type pairs figure skating. But that's not what ours is supposed to look like. Right.
0: So Meltzer didn't describe uh, this as ice dancing. He says something more closely approximating a major car wreck at the
1: interstate than a pro wrestling match. Now this goes to uh, which match? Super Brawl. Super Brawl, okay. Super Brawl, the one where, uh, where uh, Nobbs gets hurt, okay. They did
0: about as good of a job with a clumsy situation regarding Missy Hyatt in that she's been fired, but there's still many more months worth of pre-taped worldwide appearances. They explained she was at the Mayo Clinic getting her gums repaired, which is actually the funniest line of the show. Uh, pain opened by suplexing both Nasty Boys out of their wrestling boots early until he was clipped at five minutes. Jack took a cold tag and ended up taking a totally psychotic Nasty plunge bump off the apron, cracking the back of his head on the concrete. He got his head, ran into the guardrail. He came up bleeding from the mouth and somehow wound up with internal bleeding and was hospitalized after the match it's been said before and it'll be said again but nobody in wrestling works harder than people like cactus jack or sabu but it's one thing to do moves that risk injury it's another to do moves that guarantee injury shivani at this point mentioned the vader angle from last year and talked about how jack lost his memory and came back Ignoring Jack's interview saying he never lost his memory. <laughs> Don't these people watch their own shows. Jack made a comeback giving both men a DDT and tagged pain who did a suplex on Brian Nobbs that looked like it could have broken his arm and his neck because of how bad of a landing, but it quote unquote only dislocated his shoulder, although there was fear he may have broken his shoulder as well and that would actually sideline him for several weeks. Nowhere to press time how serious the injury turned out to be or how long he'll be out of action. They had to go right to the finish at that point because Knobs was done. And Payne put Knobs in the painkiller, which is the Fujiwara armbar. And Sags hit him with a guitar for the DQ. Three stars. A car crash of violence. Great way to describe it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it was the Clash of the Champions, maybe a, a few weeks before that, where I hit Knobs and Sags uh, with the double clo- cactus clothesline. So you talk about some serious tonnage going over that top rope, oh, right? Oh, yeah. I was like the lean guy at three. I was, I was right about 300 at that time. And we were all probably about 300. So 900 pounds, you know, give or take, you know, 1,000 pounds all hurtling over that top rope together. And I only did that move, uh, you know, maybe, uh, I'd say the other craziest cactus clothesline was the one where I did it with Lita on my back and a clothesline edge at WrestleMania 22, and that's where Lita and I had a talk, you don't have to do this, um, but if you do it at a certain point, you have to just jump ship. Uh, Do you think you can do that? Not a doubt in her mind. You know, I just got the little fuzzies there, thinking about how badass that was, because I'm not, I guess you, you could stretch the definition and say, I I was involved in a move that could have hurt a woman, but the intention wasn't there. Yeah. It's just she's on my back. I see Edge. I'm gonna close line Edge. Lita happens to be on my back, and it all works out for the best. But that was a, that was a serious move. That's one I was a little worried about. A lot of weight going over there, and now, uh, yeah, I'd say it was a th- it was a three star car crash. And uh, taking the Nesty plunge, you know, taking the Nesty plunge when I know there's no room for upward growth. I think you could argue that's not wise, because that was one of the... Why do it? I don't know. Don't know. I don't know. I'd have to, if I went through my entire career, I mean, I probably did that move 20 times. Wow. But probably 10 of those times was on the Indies. in nobody saw. Going around the loop, doing it as a finish every night around the loop in Memphis, and finally saying to Robert Fuller, my back, I mean, it was purple and hideous, like I couldn't bump for about a month because I took that move three, three out of four nights and we get the same thing, Jacko. And I said, Rob, I don't think I can do it tonight. And he looked at me and he said, Jack, it's probably a good decision. Man's only got so many bumps left in his body. There's not too many people out there. And he talked to me about the importance of saving that bump. So I would say if I took it 20 times, that 10 of them were in those small situations. And there were times when it did make sense. You know, I mean, I could say now, knowing we know about head injuries, I never should have done it because it's the, it's even if I got that chin tucked to my chest, which I absolutely did, it's the rattling. You know, you are all, it's like surviving a car crash. Yes. Boom, you're hitting and I didn't realize it rattles your brain around inside your skull. And jars you a lot of the stuff not not a lot, but some of the stuff I did was just jarring in that way But that nesty plunge I did was something nobody else in the business Would do and was your
0: first one against uh, mil Mascaris?
1: No, no, no first one would have been uh, 80 um, uh, Probably 88. I'm, I'm trying to think if I'd taken it. I, it was at a spot show Spot show for Memphis in front of maybe 200 people.
0: How'd you come up with that idea?
1: Uh, it, it I wasn't planned. It was a, a tagged a six-man tag team, which is how you'd close a lot of the uh, the spot shows where you'd work a couple times. You'd work in a singles and come back and either a tag or six-man. And when I took it, it was a gym floor, and I I took it in a way where when I hit, my body was kind of slick. At that time, I wore like the the straps and not the shirt. And I kind of slid with the bump and it wasn't that bad. But then I took it, uh, you know, maybe a week or two later on concrete and it just, I couldn't even conceive of anything that painful.
0: That was the worst Uh, at that
1: point. That was the worst. But then when I took it in Memphis, the first time uh, Robert Fuller uh, got in the car and he was really concerned about how they could finish uh the first match jeff had gotten robert's loaded boot you know that loaded boot was a big deal in memphis and jeff had gotten it and robert was going to pay the price but they're looking at doing four weeks six weeks keep in mind you know you're running the same towns every single week and he said Damn, i just don't want to be bleeding down to my shoes on the very first night and i said rob remember that bump you told me i might want to reserve for special occasions he said yeah i said i think this might be the special occasion so here I am. I'm holding Jeff, you know, or or I'm. I, I don't know if Jeff had the boot and was aiming for Robert. Robert ducks, boom. I get it. I uh, I take the Nesty plunge, and I think Meltzer was there. I think there was some kind of fan convention going on, not a convention, but a fan trip, and and I split the back of my head open, you know, and uh, that's where Robert uh, Fuller, who has uh, no official medical experience but he's been around a lot of wounds so when a guy like that three time third generation promoter and wrestler, oh, oh damn jack he says that <laughs> it looks like a big old pussy sitting on your head son i don't know whether i should stitch it or and then yeah. he offers the x as a second option that was the night in memphis and so you think, all right, we take that item off the menu, and it's like, no, not so fast. Um, all the other cities ran a week later, you know, because of the TV uh, delivery of the tapings. So we actually waited eight days to do it, and um, we did it, well, we did it the next, uh, coming Saturday night in uh, Nashville. Then we did it in Louisville. So by the time it comes to Evansville, Indiana, that Wednesday in front of like 120 people, I begged off, I said, I can't. I, I can't do it tonight.
0: Um, the most famous one is probably
1: the Clash. Yeah, yeah. I'd that's say, the first time I remember. Yeah, I'd say it. that's more famous. Even though I did it, I did it with uh, Taker in the Boiler Room Brawl. Yep. Uh, I did it with Rick in the I Quit match. Uh, I did it uh, at Spring Stampede which we'll talk about. And I did it out of you know necessity and desperation but there. your first mainstream one. Yeah, first one. mainstream one where people saw that bump was Clash of the Champions against Mascaris. Uh, Mill shows up only 10 minutes before the show, <laughs> the show starts. He's either missed his plane or, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. And I go from thinking I'm going to get a singles win against Rick Fargo, who was my first tag team partner, to Mill being here and all, you know, I've seen him work. I know he's hip toss, hip toss. He's going to get his stuff in. And all I ask is to get in this one spot and I've got to kind of fight for it. So the spot is I'm going to give him the backbreaker out on the floor. But when I go up to the ring apron and my back is turned to him, he's going to roll underneath the rope. So when I go to turn around, there's nobody there. Now, I go to drop my elbow, there's nobody there. I turn around, Mill, drop kick, off I go. Now, I'll argue that Mill, he doesn't know me, so I don't guess he doesn't think he can trust somebody, you know, on a simple move like a backbreaker. So Mill basically, <laughs> he puts his hands down. Worst backbreaker. Yeah, ever. it's the worst backbreaker ever, right? But I think the timing on the other part of the spot was good.
0: Nobody remembered uh, the backbreaker.
1: Yeah, and, and believable to when I turned around and I looked and there's nobody home, boom. And now here's where Corny keeps me Jack alive. Is Jack is dead. Jim Ross and Jim Cornette. And Corny, I think, was an uh, underheralded uh, color man. I thought he was really sure. sharp, really good, but his first priority was always to get the talent over. And he gives that great line, you know, this is. This is uh, 1990, so this is eight years before Hell in a Cell and Jay Hart, as the immortal iconic call, you know, God is my witness, he's been broken in half. But Jim Cornette at that time, Cactus Jack is dead. And now as I start to move, he says, no man could get up from that, but he's doing it. Concrete, no human being could get back up after that, but he's doing it. And now I, all I wanted to do was kick out. I wanted to kick out from that and then get beaten. And, you know, I was, I was overruled uh, by Rick. So uh, I was overruled. I thought that as one of their guys, uh, not just somebody who was coming in because it was Cinco de Mayo, I believe, um, and it was in Corpus Christi, um, I, I thought that would be a, a good way, a good character builder, Overruled on that, and I did the, you know, did the favor, and then I I lost another match to Wolf Wilde the drummer of the house band, who was J T Southern. So, at the end of that night, uh, Tully's dad, um, the play, it was Blanchard's, Joe Blanchard, Joe Blanchard, comes up and he starts like taking off his, you know, work gloves because he was setting up the ring. He goes, well, I might as well take a shot at you. <laughs> You're into two. Another loss isn't going to hurt you. He was putting me over. It's tremendous. But he's like, I couldn't even beat the drummer of a band, you know. Yeah. So it was, it, I'm so glad that I came out of it with a little bit of the spotlight. And that's solely because Jim Ross and Jim Cornette made me look like I was the star of that match, even when I was getting no offense in whatsoever.
0: Is there a trick to taking the nasty plunge the right way? No. It's going to hurt no matter what. It's going
1: to hurt no matter what. Yeah. I mean, you, well, if there's a trick, it's not a trick, you just, you need to land flat because if you land on your, say you land kind of lower back, but first, then you're going to have a whiplash effect. uh, But there's no right way to, there's no wise way to do it. And given what it did to me, you know, internal, you know, internal bleeding was a sign you did it well. You know? So peeing blood was a good sign. And blo- no, I'm talking about spitting it up. Oh, okay. Spitting it up um, was my sign. Wow, that had to look good. Uh, don't, please, for anyone out there, don't do it because it's not worth it. Antonio Inoki was on the shelf for eight months to a year after. I think he inadvertently did it in a match with Hogan. Um, Bad-looking bump. It's a bad, mean, tough bump, and there is no... There's, um, There's no, no magic loop- to concrete. There's no loophole. There's yeah. absolutely no loophole. So
0: the rest of this match, though, my goodness, as if the nestique plunge isn't enough, then you know they hit your head on the guardrail, and I mean it says here that
1: that you're in the hospital afterwards. Do you remember this? I don't. I do not remember being in the hospital. It's, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I would. I mean, maybe they took me there as a precautionary measure because you know, it's a you know, corporate corporation. Uh, I don't remember being in the hospital.
0: Would you bullshit your way if you did go to the hospital? Like, oh, I'm fine, I feel fine. Probably. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. But I think if I'd gone there, I would, I am a, I. you know, I remember when I was having trouble after taking those bumps in Memphis, uh, actually going to a chiropractor and uh, and having some x-rays taken. At that time, he said that my spine didn't have the curve in the middle, that it was pushed forward, presumably, he thought, because of these bumps I described to him. Had he Uh,
0: seen them? Had the chiropractor
1: seen seen them? Seen the bumps? No, because none of them were on TV. Yeah, okay.
0: So, uh, Flair's working at the uh, time with a really bad neck, Um, and, and I guess that makes sense why it's a three on two, but at least that night, when Snook is there, I could see how if you're watching at home, you think, well, maybe Snuka's got not going to round out their team, but he's going to be in their corner. But Meltzer would say, he's not heard that that was the case. Did you ever think Snuka would be there? Um,
1: Just based on the connection with both you and Rock? You know what? I think I may have pitched the idea that Snuka should be in our corner and Bob uh, Orton Jr. should be in theirs because it, 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 now you got WrestleMania 1 and WrestleMania 20. Your snooker was the guy outside the ring, and uh, wasn't it Bob Junior? was outside because yep. it was uh, it was no, it was Roddy and Paul Orndorff, right? They were against uh, Mister T and, and Hulk.
0: Oh right, right. Yes. Orndorff, so yeah.
1: I thought it was a nice bookend. I believe I did suggest it, and it didn't didn't happen.
0: So you're going to do the Hall of Fame ceremony WrestleMania weekend and present Don Morocco. Yeah. Uh, Man, this is just all over your MSG memory here, yeah, is it not? Yeah, Snuckle right before, Morocco here for the Hall of Fame. This is very Foley.
1: And it was fun at that time because uh, the presenters were sitting out almost like an a dais, and I remember sitting next to Shawn Michaels, and I always had a good friendship with Shawn. Um, and I remember <laughs> Jerry Briscoe is on big John studs uh, video package. And he goes, if I had to describe big John stud in one word, it would be big. (laughs) (laughs) I turned to Sean. I said, that was profound. Right. So we were out there, I guess it's probably better for visually if the presenters only out there for a short time. Uh, But I was really honored to be asked. I don't. I don't think I was Morocco's choice, but I think at that time, you know, you were kind of given somebody. I was lucky that when my number was called, I I was given my choice. And Terry Funk gave a really great induction speech. Um, At that time, I remember it. You know, remember that fondly. Billy Graham was uh, inducted. uh, Big John Studd. Junkyard Dog was uh, inducted posthumously, and uh, you know, his daughter was there. It was it was great to be around the guys. Uh, we realized we've got something major to do the next day. It yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, it was really a great way to, uh, it's almost like, you know, your final meal before you walk that green mile.
0: What was the vibe that weekend with everybody knowing Goldberg and Lesnar are finishing up and not on the best of terms?
1: I don't think that soured anybody. You know, I remember Brock like apologizing to me, and I said, No, man, you got to have to go after your dreams. And he did. And then when he came back to wrestling, he was, you know, he he just asserted himself and made himself. It worked out. It worked out for everybody. Uh, You're one of the top attractions on the show, you're you're in the
0: fourth place on the card. how did that meet your expectation? You know, just given the idea that it's you and Rock and Ric Flair all in the same ring. I
1: thought we were the first match on the main
0: card. I
1: think I thought, fourth overall is what we're doing. Fourth overall, there. okay. Um, man, uh, Conrad, I was so I was just so scared, and I just wanted it to be over. It wasn't. It wasn't that classic, Foley presentation, and you know, getting up for it, and peaking. Like, I just, if I could have had my wish and it would be over without me participating at all, like if I could just (laughs) blink my eyes and said, it's over and it was good, we did it. I just, uh, uh, I didn't have my mojo, which was odd because in building that storyline, I did have the mojo. And I was just, I was overwhelmed by the enormity of the moment. Again, it was rock. It was Rick. And Randy was, you know, young. Dave, I mean, he was new to the business and new to WWE. He had a few years on on Randy and he, I just felt overwhelmed and like I didn't belong there. Yeah, I was, I don't want to overstate how disappointed I was in myself, but I was I was very disappointed.
0: Well, what preparation went into putting the match together? You know, we've heard at various times when Rock would come back, uh, he's gonna be putting in a lot of time in the ring with guys like Curtis Axel or what have you just getting ready for a match like this but this is a return match for you too so are you guys going through stuff at a warehouse somewhere or? no
1: just that day okay and it's probably you know probably too much stuff was set up uh as we get into talking about the singles match with me and Randy I'll talk more about that process. There was a lot of talk that went in, two sets of heat. Um, I I took a clothesline from Batista that affected my voice. So the next day I was doing some stuff for WWE and you could tell I was really hoarse, you know, just it caught me a little bit high. a little higher than I, you know, than you'd like. Um, And again, I can't tell you that much about the match because I've never watched it. I just know that uh Rock and uh, Rick were electrifying and that I curled up in a ball. And
0: well, Let's talk about Rick for a minute because we know that you guys are going to have an issue. Um, it hasn't yet happened right. at that point. But you did say earlier when I, I sort of guessed that maybe some of the folks who thought that you hurt Randy in the promo, that it was Triple H. And you said, well, Rick too. So could you tell... Was there any sort of, I don't know if animosity is the right word. There's
1: tension. Could you tell, like, we're not on the same page? No, because um, uh, the first time evolution uh, jumped me and beat me down, I was thinking Rick's going to give me a little retribution, you know, for, for what I'd written in my book about him. That's where the hard feelings were. Um, and he didn't. He was light as a feather. And I even joked around with him about that. And, uh, and he made it clear that he, he business and personal, they don't, you know, he's, gonna, he's a consummate professional. And that young man I talked about, Marcos, he um, he passed away very shortly after, that, within a few days of that um, event at Penn State. And I had asked Vince if I could address the wrestlers. And Vince came on and he said, uh, Mick Foley would like to talk to all of you. Um, I know how busy all of you are on the road. Sometimes we forget about the difference that we are able to make in people's lives. And Mick would like to to remind you about that. And here I go, I'm used to addressing and would address later that night, 12 to 15,000, whatever the live crowd was, and be completely comfortable doing that. But now I'm among my peers. It's different. It's different. And it was one of the most difficult things I had to do, but what I wanted to do was thank each and every person who went out of their way to make one of his last days on earth one of his best days. The mom had asked me if I would be okay with him wearing the stuff that we had given him for his casket. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be okay. Like, wow, what an honor that is. And I remember I I even dropped that rare F bomb, you know, because he was wearing Austin's shirt, you know, (sighs) F fear. And I remember saying, that's right, fuck fear as d- unusual for me to drop that. And I remember Rick being very emotional and that it was like, uh, man, it was like a, it was a really emotional day. And I apologized to Rick for the way my book had made him feel. That would later go on to be a thing. It's like I wasn't apologizing for what I wrote. I was apologizing that it had caused such bad feelings, which might seem uh, like it's the same thing uh but there were a lot of tears among uh the men and women you know in that dressing room and that was one of the most difficult things i felt like i had ever done i'd just been at his funeral earlier that day but i felt like everyone should know about the difference they've made in that young man's life absolutely
0: um right after you is the famous austin brett i quit match with the double turn you know, it's a weird thing to ask, but you set the stage earlier where you said, I knew if there was something big, I wanted to be in the crowd. Not saying you were in the crowd, but did you get a chance to watch on a monitor? Or it's yeah. more about I gotta get this stuff off of me. No, show. no, no.
1: I think uh I know I was watching it live uh on the monitor. I don't think I wandered out, but this is a case where the monitor only sells out for either the matches that have potential to be really good or really bad. Yeah. And 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 even in '97, when I say Mania isn't wasn't then what it is now, you were still having a lot of people who would watch much yeah. more so, and we understood that this thing had the potential to be great, and it was pretty obvious within five minutes that we were watching something special that night.
0: WCW at the time is putting on tremendous cards. But boy, the main event, in a word, sucked. You know, it's going to be Hogan and Piper or something like that. The undercard, though, you're going to get to see Eddie Guerrero's and Chris Benoit's yeah. and Ray Mysterio's. But the rap on the WBF at the time was the undercard may not be awesome, but the main event, yeah. Woof, yeah. they're going to deliver. And I felt like at the time that that match with Bretton Austin was almost like a momentum shifter. Now that didn't prove out in the ratings, right? But it certainly felt like, man, there's nobody in WCW who could do what these guys just did. Did you feel the same way at the time?
1: Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll, I know. I've asked a few people. Uh, I remember asking Rick Rick Rubin, the producer, if he understood. Uh, he Rick was is still a big wrestling fan. Yeah. I remember asking him if he knew. They had something special when Johnny Cash recorded "Hurt," and Rick saw. He goes, "Not until the video." The video was is almost indelibly linked that you can't even listen to "Hurt" without thinking of that incredible. I get it, the, the head rush now just thinking about that video, one of the most emotional yeah. you know, music videos ever done. Um, and so it's I love getting a feel for what other people say about magic moments whether you realize they're happening and i've talked about the element of magic and i really believe in that and that's part of the reason i i'm grateful that wwe has divided their mania into two nights because it's almost impossible to have that magic moment in a main event at the end of seven hours It's yes. just beyond the boundaries of yeah, human endurance right it's too much it's why people needed that breather when i hated being part of it because i knew how hard seth rollins and finn balor were working and then finding out that finn had been injured the uh, in that three minutes into the match it still went another 23 and the crowd at SummerSlam started the this belt is stupid because it was the reveal of the red yeah. belt and i will say that in my you know now when i go to conventions, all of those things. I've probably signed several hundred hardcore titles. The winged eagle, I've signed a lot of. I think I've signed that red belt three times. And the 24-7 green belt twice, you know? Yeah. So these belts were not didn't resonate with people. But I think if that match had been on after three hours or two hours instead of at the five-hour mark, uh, the fans wouldn't have reacted. But they just need that They need to be able to relax and enjoy that. Yeah. Um, But the element of magic has to be there for a match to go from being great to classic and from classic to something that families will specifically hand down to the next generation. I'm just curious, as you're watching in the monitor
0: and you see that great visual of Stone Cold trying to push out of the sharpshooter and that blood is streaming down me getting to know you makes me think you're probably watching that thinking, man, I know I'm hurting, but I gotta have a moment like
1: that. Ooh, I wanted a moment like that. Yeah. And I had not and the WrestleMania moment would be elusive to me. But at that time, to me there wasn't a big difference between mania and and in your house. It's just as far as pride of ownership. So one month later or three weeks later, I'm in that main event. Of the In Your House match. And I'm having what I think is a great moment when I go off the apron head first through the table. What a spot. <laughs> a spot. Never been done before, and I haven't seen it done since. Uh, and I was really happy to be, you know, the guy given the task of being Undertaker's first opponent. Like, yeah. no doubt. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm watching as a fan, first or foremost, first and foremost. And a love, friend of Steve's. And a friend of Steve's. And then there's that, you know, third, but not that far behind is your Jesus, man. You know, he's competition for a spot as well. And he's just captured that top spot in the company with a double turn that I never saw coming.
0: Yeah. Guys, I can't wait to talk about today's sponsor. It's Henson shaving. I've become such a huge fan of Henson. I have to admit we vet all of our sponsors before they become a sponsor. So they sent me a Henson razor and buddy, I loved it. We've talked about how thin and how tiny those blades are. I was like, man, I can't believe this is real. And I got to tell you, just holding the assembly, the Henson razor in my hand, it just felt quality. It felt old school. It felt like something manly. It felt like something my grandfather, my great grandfather used. It was awesome. And by the way, it gave me the best shave ever. Seriously, I can't even tell you the difference. Uh, but I've been using all the little fancy plastic piece of junk razors down at the grocery store. I didn't think they were junk because they costed a lot. But it wasn't until I was so in love with Henson shaving that I went to buy my dad one. Seriously, I was telling dad about it and he thought, well, how good can it be? And I said, I'm going to get you one. So I went over to the Henson shaving website and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how affordable it was. I thought this was a great product, but I thought it cost three or four times what it does because it feels like this product will last you a lifetime. When it's in your hand, this feels like the last razor I'll ever buy. And considering how many blades I got with it, because they're going to send you a freaking hundred blades. So I thought to myself, self. This has got to be a certain number. It was a third of what I thought it was. Go see for yourself right now, Henson shaving. This is not in the copy. Everything I've told you so far is just from the heart. I'm just being sincere here. Reality is this is not only a better razor. It's also cheaper than what you've been using. Think about that. If it's better and it's cheaper, why wouldn't you do this? You just got to meet Henson shaving. Let me explain. Henson Shaving is a family owned aerospace parts manufacturer. These dudes have made stuff for the International Space Station and Mars Rover, and now they're bringing that same technology and engineering to your face, Daddy. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, well, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. You see, a bad shave isn't really a blade problem, it's an extension problem. And by using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend just 0.0013 inches. That's less than the thickness of a human hair. It also means a secure blade and a stable blade with a vibration free shave. By the way, it gets better. The razor has built in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. And here's what I love as a businessman about Henson shaving. They want to make the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades and no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with a standard dual edge blade to give you that old school shave with all the benefits of new school tech. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only like, listen up, three to $5 a year to replace the blades. I can't believe this is real. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Go right now, I encourage you, I implore you, go to HensonShaving.com Foley to pick the razor for you and use code Foley. You'll get two years worth of blades for free with your razor, just make sure to add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash Foley and be sure to use code Foley. By the way, if you're curious, I bought my dad, Copper. He loves it. You'll love yours, too. Hansonshaving.com forward slash Foley. So we find ourselves in a tag match here for you uh, at WrestleMania. Um, Some creative ideas are floated around, and Jim Cornette gives you a call, and you wrote this in your book. I received a phone call at home from Jim Cornette. He was all excited. Cactus, he said, in his high-pitched Louisville lingo. I know you haven't been in the mix that much, but dadgum, I think we've got something for you. What is it corny? Well, Cactus, we're thinking of doing a little something where Mark Miro, and Rena continue their little spat and you don't like it, so you deck Mark. You want Rena with your little group, but Uncle Paul doesn't like it, so you deck Paul. Now, Paul still doesn't like Rena, but he knows he has to tolerate her for your sake and the three of you will have your own little strange family. So I'll just stop right there. But at this point, you had to hate every bit of this,
1: right? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. Um, and uh, I want to—I don't want to make my words so lukewarm that uh, you know we stink up the place here. Uh, but I also want to preface what I'm about to say by saying Mark Mero is one of the great ex-wrestlers of all time. Meaning what he does, talking to oh, you know, yeah. schools, he's phenomenal but that the wild man character wasn't it's a miss it was a miss and what added fuel to the fire I'm talking about the fire in my gut and i think yeah. i could speak for steve austin uh also at this time uh mark had come in just shortly after steve and only days after i came in and whereas i signed for uh an opportunity mark got a guaranteed contract and a pretty sizable one and that, ah, oh man, it, it fueled me in a positive way. But it was, all, you know, this negativity that we fed off of and channeled it in positive ways. So I I did not want to be in an angle with Mark because I just didn't, I thought my character connected with a lot of different characters. Uh, and they didn't have to be, I mean, they could be straight, you know, like straight men, you know, wrestlers. I worked really, really well with a guy like Bret Hart or uh, character-driven uh, wrestlers, I didn't feel like I could do something solid with Mark. And I should have, and you know, looking back on it now, Rena was really on the rise at that yes. time as Sable, and she would go on to be a veritable superstar. That could have been really interesting, but I think I, I know that before, um, before um, my Mind Games match with Sean, uh, originally I was supposed to be slotted in for a match with Mark. And the company really was behind him at that time. You know, I mean, Vince had pressure to make the investment, the investment look, yeah. look like it was a, a, a good one. Uh, and I didn't want to be, I wasn't excited about it. I wasn't in a position where I could say no, but I don't know what changed behind the scenes where I went from singles with Mark Merrill to a singles with Shawn Michaels, but that worked out to my favor. Yeah, hell yeah. And again, just Mark Merrill, he's a, And I personally apologized to him for, you know, for taking shots at him over the years. And it was purely out of financial jealousy, as is, you know, something, anything I would have said about Rena, you know, in years later was purely out of jealousy, part of it, you know, financial and part of it, you know, going to autograph shows where her line would be five times what mine was It hurt, you know, it hurts guys like me. Uh, but she was a veritable superstar on the rise. And that could have been a good angle. But I did not want to be part. I get, a, I get a sinking feeling, you know, like I'm a gut player, too. When your heart sings into your stomach, that's a sign that something's not right about it. You know, I could be elated after a talk with a, and corny. a good salesman, right? Yeah. hell yeah. And corny was often the, the bearer of bad news when it came to. He was the guy who would deliver the news to me. He was the guy who told me after I did these vignettes as Mankind that were a big hit with everyone except Vince. Yep. And I said, but Jimmy, Vince said he loved my promos. And he hesitated and said, Cactus, I'm not sure Vince has ever seen one of your promos, which was still strange to me. And I know we've talked about that in the past. It would feel like a guy who micromanages everything would take that extra 10 minutes to look at a highlight tape or maybe yeah. even an hour. If yeah. this guy's going to be one of the you know, backbones of the company, maybe you should take that hour to watch a few promos, a few matches, and really get a better grasp on what you have. But Vince is a gut player. What he sees on that 13-inch monitor the first time you walk into his ring is what your, your future is based on.
0: Talking about Mero for a minute, did you have any – Interaction with him in WCW. I mean, you guys were there for a yeah, long we were time. there and we
1: were good friends. Uh, I remember Mark and Rena. It would be at uh, Sting's gym, Sting and Luger Main Event Fitness. Mark and Rena coming to Dewey's birthday party. Uh, so I consider Mark a, Mark a good friend. Uh, and I and what he was doing with Johnny B Bad was tremendous. And he also showed that he can make himself a valuable commodity. You know, Rumor had it that Jane Fonda saw uh, some of the great work that Mark was doing on his own, speaking to groups of kids, it's always been something in his heart. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and that was part of the reason why he ended up with a, such a great contract in WCW. So no question that that was a great fit. Here's a, <laughs> a Jewish kid from upstate New York, playing a black man, from Macon, Georgia, yes, and somehow making it work. I remember saying to a, there was a guy named Frank Palera who was a huge boxing enthusiast, who uh, who went to college with me in Cortland, New York, and uh, and Mark Mer- Mark Merrow had knocked out one of his guys. Uh, maybe he defeated Razor Ruddock. Uh, he he'd beaten somebody who was a really big deal in professional boxing, and I said, yeah, Mark Merrow, uh, he beat Razor Ruddock and. And uh and he goes, but Mark but Merrow's a white guy. He didn't know Mark Merrow was Johnny B. Bad. And so when I told him that, the guy playing Johnny B. Bad had beaten Razor Ruddock, he said, Merrow's a white guy. So Mark spent so much time in that tanning bed. That yeah. He accurately portrayed a flamboyant black man. Uh did it very well, uh to the point where Vince became a big fan of that character and he was really rolling. But I didn't have anything to, I didn't, I don't even know if we had a match. Don't even know if we had a match when I was in WCW.
0: But I mean, he's coming to your kid's birthday party. So your
1: uh, quote unquote
0: heat with him is really with the company that they believe in in him more than
1: they believed in you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, it it hurt. I remember Steve and I, uh, Austin and I commiserating over it, uh, but it was a positive. You know, I don't know if I could have reached the heights I did without that little kick in the butt
0: how much of that really came down to leverage too in that you know you didn't jump right from wcw to the wwf and nor did steve yeah so maybe they felt like well hey he'll take it or you know as jr likes to say go shop your resume yeah whereas when marrow comes he created a little bit of a low-key bidding
1: war between both sides
0: yeah and
1: I did. Keep in mind, what I had going on was I was working for ECW, Yes. Um, doing some good stuff there. I was in IWA, Japan, pulling down three grand a week, which is really three grand for 10 days because they're three days of travel. And coming home in really rough shape. Burn up. Burn up, yeah, especially in August. But even before then, coming home with the wounds that I, I said a doctor you know, described as looking like I'd been part of a prison break or saying he'd only heard about injuries like these uh, in prison breaks. And even when w, even when IWA Japan wanted to keep me there and wanted to put me under contract, they were going to bump me up by 500 a week. So you'd be looking at 10 tours a year for $3,500. Not great money no. considering what you're doing to earn it. And so this isn't a case where, you know, you've got a, a Hanson or Brody contract in all Japan and you can make your living there in 20 weeks and then kind of take it easy, take some Indies, do whatever you want to do. Stan later went on to be part of WCW, you know, on I think on a thousand dollar a night guarantee. Uh, but got big guys like that who worked a really physical style usually had time to recuperate. Whereas yeah. I would come home, my wife, I may remember one night. My wife met me at JFK with the kids. We drove to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. The kids were sleeping, so I went in, did my match with Sandman uh, at the same arena that New Jack tried to throw Taz over the, through the window, like out onto a fifty-foot, you know, a fifty-foot drop, and this was Taz in a neck brace after breaking his neck. Um, but I, I mean, I was back from Japan and on the road every just about every single weekend you know you had to make uh, hay while what is was it make hay while the sunshine there you go there you go hey
0: you're a southerner you gotta now. do it yeah i
1: um i was
0: fortunate this was enough. flair right yeah you're gonna laugh i have that do you really when they uh unfortunately jeff Jarrett, who's a real sob we had a plan in a parking lot to sell rick flair's last match <laughs> so rick knows what to do Rick was well-prepared. He couldn't wait to do it. Turns out it wasn't necessary. Jeff Jarrett stabbed my father-in-law in the head with his wife's shoe. For real. Not a gimmick. Not a guia's okay. But a, a his hard way. And we're talking just gushing. And then afterwards, Rick unwinds the magic and says, Well, I don't know what to do with this. Because he never used it. And I said... Well, I mean, we need to frame that or something. Like, this is, to you, this is the one that got away. I mean, have you ever had one that didn't get used He goes, no, I think that's the first one.
1: So. <laughs> Do you know, just a little segue, which our fans enjoy. One of the uh, most rewarding parts about uh, writing uh, Have a Nice Day was giving out notebooks to different uh, colleagues. So Steve Austin, big proponent of Have a Nice Day. Kid, you got some more of that book I can read? And he'd be up there in first class about a year before I got uh, bumped up. And those big lat muscles, he'd be up there with the businessmen, and their attache cases, and he'd be up there just belly laughing, putting it over big time. So here's me and Kane, you know, and the backing coach. He loved the part where it comes up to me and Vader, where, where Harley, we're going to get some hard way, some hard way blood and uh harley's an expert at this stuff right he's gonna pop me once with this big old paw boom right over the eyebrow and instead leon beat him to the punch you know leon gave me about six stitches below the eye four or five above it and so when i get to harley the truth is he looks at me and goes it's already done but in my telling it was it's already done grumbled disappointed harley can <laughs> like yes. he made him out to be like the guy just itching to get in there on me and it was like even harley was excited despite the devastating setback he just endured which was he wasn't given the opportunity to split me wide open
0: i love it so uh this call with cornet where he's laying out this plan for rena and strange little family you're straight up with corny and say hey uh i don't really love that and he says something like, you know, we're just trying to get you on the card for Mania. And you relay, well, if that's the idea, I'd rather not be on Mania. Yeah. That took some balls.
1: It did. I wasn't thumbing, thumbing my nose at Mania. I just, I wanted everything I did to be good. Yeah. I wanted people to know when I was on a card or on a show it's that it miss. was going to be good. And I didn't want to just, I didn't want a participation trophy. You know, I wanted to go out there, and I'm not saying in trophies in general are bad things. But at that time, I was 20, you know, 29 years old. You're trying but, to make an impression. Yeah, trying to make an impression. Um, and it's important to realize your moments
0: so far at WrestleMania have been. Attacking the Undertaker the night after WrestleMania, mm-hmm. beating him in a boiler room brawl, tearing the house down with Shawn Michaels, literally burying the Undertaker, and then the next month he's reborn and floats down from heaven in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and now hey, uh, you're going to be feuding with Mark. I could see how you're like, mm, that's not the next logical spot for right. me. Yeah, right.
1: and so I would have rather taken a step back, allowed people to catch their collective breaths. Yeah. And then come back with something strong. Because I always felt like I could do that. I had that sense of confidence. And I also felt like absence makes the heart grow fonder. I didn't feel like I needed to be on every pay-per-view. I didn't feel like I needed to be on every TV. I I felt like I had to be featured enough to, to make people care. But I didn't feel like I needed to be involved in everything every week or every month. Just a handful of
0: years prior to this, you're hoping that Vader splash you on the ramp and end your wrestling career. Right, right. At this point in early 97, how many years did you imagine you'd be wrestling forward? Like, did you think... Because a lot of guys think, you know, WrestleMania is all about the moments. I've got to have my moment. And I wasn't able to participate in 96. If I'm telling Corny now, well, I'd rather just not be on Mania then. You've got to wonder, knowing your career or this contract is coming due... Somewhere in your mind's eye, I've got X
1: number of years left, right? right? Right. What do you think that was at the time? I remember Paul Heyman surprising me by at a time when I did not think WWE was in my future, telling me that he thought it could be and that they could see me as a guy who could work near the top for 10 years. Wow. Because I I thought the about five was all I had left, and it turns out that four was all I had left. Mm-hmm. But as we get into, as you don't mean financially. You mean physically. Physically, I thought that's all I had to offer, and I did not know that I could be doing a podcast, yeah, about this match twenty-five years after the fact. I think you and I talked about uh, the idea that I thought I had an eighteen-month shelf life, right? Um, comic cons were not a, you know, comic cons were not a big deal. Yeah, you know, even the uh, San Diego was uh, ten thousand people in uh in 99 um the wrestling conventions were kind of in their infancy yeah uh john orizzi had the first one in 1990 i think with weekend of champions but even then you had about six or eight guys you know it wasn't a WrestleCon. con you had 100 people and so i thought i've got to make my money while i can i believed i had a five-year window but as soon as i do that match with the undertaker buried alive that's where i start having difficulties with my back you know, if I had to trace it back to one thing, it would be that bump from the ladder, which I thought would take me 100% onto the cardboard boxes. And I'd say about half my body landed on the boxes. A yeah. SummerSlam? Yeah, SummerSlam. So it, uh, you never know because in most cases, I'd say almost all cases, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back.
0: Accumulation. Yeah, it's yeah, the
1: accumulation. But I that's when I really started hurting on a regular basis. So by the time WrestleMania rolls around, 97, I don't, I'm not sure I've got three months left, Wow! let alone five years.
0: So you may have just told Corney, I'd rather finish my <laughs> career not being on a WrestleMania. And yeah. so from that, you have a meeting with Vince, Bruce, Paul Bear, and Gerald Briscoe. Um, obviously, you've spent a lot of time working with these guys over the prior year. But Vince McMahon is an intimidating figure. Yeah, I mean, he is the Walt Disney of this stuff, and he certainly has a presence when you meet him and all that. And here you are seemingly thumbing your nose at his creation, his granddaddy of them all, his Super Bowl. Are you nervous going into that meeting that you have to explain why you would rather not do
1: it? Yeah, yeah. It's always nerve-wracking to talk to Vince. I think when I finally got to a point uh, where I could assert myself and get in arguments and even verbal fights with Vince it did a lot for my sense that I could do anything because after you've you know traded war a war been in a war of words with the larger than life bellicose billionaire yeah. uh, the rest of the life is pretty easy yeah it's not as difficult um I don't specifically remember that meeting Uh, I don't but I do know that I was really concerned that I didn't have much left in the tank just because of the back injury nothing I was doing seemed to be working I was kind of my at that time you'd be on the road for 10 days off for three days on for three off for three Uh, and I remember that almost every off day well, or at least one day out of that of those three would be spent going to the chiropractor and the yeah. massage therapist, just really trying to get through the next ten days. There was a guy named Francois Petit. Oh, uh, uh, he was the yeah, man. Yeah, he, he was the man. You know, he was like a, almost like a miracle healer, but you had to pay for that miracle. The stuff he did was extremely painful, especially he had these incredibly strong fingers. And he would, have, he would put pressure on points in your forearm, ask you to open up your fingers. Like it, There were guys who would just walk out of those uh, therapy sessions because they, they, it was incredibly painful. But he described me when I walked into his office as looking like a question mark, meaning that I was just so incredibly over. bent over. Anyone who's ever had that incredible pain and sciatica seems like a benign uh, condition. But it's it, not man, it'll bring a, a grown man and a tough man to his knees to the point where in 2007, when I had another run with sciatica, I remember my daughter just looking at me with such sympathy in her eyes and such pain in her own eyes. But she'd never seen her dad reduced to that state where my I had to actually get in the back. I think we had a pretty good SUV at that point. And my wife had to take me to the hospital with me in the back, rolled up in the fetal position. So now imagine that type of pain, yeah. but it's 10 years earlier, and you're, ha- you're, not, you're not allowed the luxury of curling up in a fetal position in an SUV. You have to be on that flight, which is coach every almost every single, not every three or four days you're on a plane. Other than that, you're driving from town to town, but you're in a difficult coach class seats, it's, an, it's a difficult way of life, and we all know that going in. But when you've been in it now, at that point, we're talking 12 years or 11 when the pain really comes in. I had a pretty good uh, threshold for pain. And so when I said something was bothering me, it, it was really, really bothering me. And at that point, I wouldn't even consider taking a pain pill for the pain. That wasn't even part of the equation. Uh, Why were you so opposed because I'd I was not as opposed to pain pills because I'd seen that path and I did not want to go down that path. I remember when I was going to Memphis for the first time, that was almost like a romantic vision that you'd be the guy who gets so banged up and that when your friends see you, you know, your words are slurred. Uh, I'd, you'd, that was crazy to say that's like a romantic vision, but that was almost like an accepted path. For the wrestling business in tennessee and, yeah when i went to tennessee i'm not saying that it was accepted in tennessee i'm just saying i understood at that point that wrestlers were starting to get medication i i didn't know that one of the most coveted relationships you could have uh, in the territories is with a nurse with a prescription pad that was a very hel- heralded uh you know relationship to have um and i'd seen enough to know, I didn't want to go down that path, and so I was resistant even one pain pill. I'm um, you know, I was trying to make it on its own. Eventually, I'd, I'd fold to the point where I would have one pill every great you know, uh, it's once in a great while, and it would work. It would, no question about it, it worked. But I understood that you could uh, develop a tolerance in a hurry and that something that was first taken out of necessity then becomes a drug, a recreational drug. And I did not want to go down that path.
0: Once upon a time I had a conversation with Jeff Jarrett about how it felt like when guys would use the word SOMA, they were always talking about essentially the new generation WWF. Mm -hmm. And I asked why he thought maybe that was, and he reminded me that that was the era where drug testing really became a thing. And so, for years and years prior to that, uh, guys would rely on marijuana Mm -hmm. and beer. And now, you were being tested, and and you couldn't be caught smoking marijuana. Mm -hmm. So, you would go the prescription route because that was legal and you wouldn't get in trouble. It was. And it became almost, you had to pick your poison. And don't get me wrong, marijuana was illegal. But boy, in
1: hindsight, it would have been better for a lot of guys, wouldn't it? Yeah, it certainly would have. Uh, I never used marijuana recreationally. Uh, I think we, we talked about uh, my first experience with an edible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so even when I had an edible, it would knock me on my butt. Um, but I've still, to this point, never never uh, r- smoked, smoked marijuana. Yeah. But even then, I understood that, man, it's not the worst thing to have yeah. guys. Basically... They get the munchies and they laugh at stuff that doesn't seem funny. Yes, that's what happens. And and I would rather be in a room full of... uh, Funny, hungry guys. Funny, hungry guys in a room full of drunks. Yes. You know, people who um, partook in marijuana didn't get angry. They didn't get in fights. Um, The crazy mood swing was happy. Yeah, it was happy. And I remember thinking even then, even though I didn't partake, that uh, that was a tough thing to take off the table for the guys... Uh, uh, Kurt Hennig referred to it as the peace pipe. Uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, when they took the peace pipe out of the hands, then guys started drinking more. Yeah, And at that point, there didn't seem to be a kind of national database and guys could shop for doctors and have them in um, different cities. And that's where you started to see this, the Soma Shuffle, which was completely new to me. I hadn't seen that. And I mean, I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but I also think that the somas, which are muscle relaxers, allowed the guys to completely relax their muscles, which is when muscles grow in rest. So guys who work out hard, there seems to be a a reason for it, you know, the need for it. Um, The sleep is really difficult, it was always- But mixing it with alcohol is dangerous. And mixing with alcohol is dangerous. Uh, but even uh, Shane Douglas told me at the time when the testing came in that guys would start drinking more yeah, just to get to sleep. It's tough. You know, you're, you're, you're working a nighttime business. And where we differ from touring bands is that the guys get in their buses and they go and they have beds on those buses. Your and, real work starts behind the wheel. Yeah, yeah. Getting from town to town. Uh, and trying to, knowing that there'll be one day, especially if you were like me and like to get on the road that night to the next town, you could make it in there by two or 3 a.m. and you could sleep till, sleep as long as you wanted. But then the next day, you're in a position where you're checking into a hotel for three, four hours. The Foley rule, and this is where the, the legendary thriftiness stories come in, is that I wouldn't check into a hotel if I was gonna be there less than four hours. I would sit on a couch or lay on a couch or lay in my rental car, whatever the case may be. In the long term, I probably did myself more harm than good. Um, but i like, getting the good rest. Yeah, by not getting the good rest. But I, what I'm saying is it was really difficult to go from being, all right, I can I get 10 hours tonight, and this next night I'm getting zero hours. And not only am I getting zero hours, but I've got to go home and be dad. the best dad I can be, especially for that first day. Tough man. Hey guys, Double J, Jeff Jarrett. Need to call a timeout real quick here. I wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my world listeners for a while now. It's about all the incredible things happening over on adfreeshows.com. David Crockett and Conrad go day by day through June of 1985 in Jim Crockett Promotions on the latest episode of The Book, the month that the grandson of a plumber arrived.
0: June 30th, Cody Rhodes is gonna be born. I mean, his dad wow. is, is, is wrestling with Tully Blanchard in Los Angeles and Dusty's got to hurry home and rush out of there and get home to Charlotte to see his wife Michelle give birth to the American nightmare. It's a special day in Jim Crockett promotions history. Jake, the snake Roberts chatted live with Ad free shows members about his Hall of Fame career and a story about Ron Garvin you won't soon forget.
1: You know, everybody's got a tail, you know? So you know if they do that, then here here comes his comeback. You know what Ronnie Garvin's tail was? His nipples would get hard. (laughs) Swear to God, man. His nipples would get rock hard. When his nipples got rock hard, man, he was coming to his feet and he's gonna beat your ass. Hey, that's just a small taste of what Ad Free Shows has waiting for you, including a brand new perk, getting to join in on the live recordings of the shows with four levels to choose from, see for yourself, why Shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at AdFreeShows.com. That's right, sign up today at AdFreeShows.com.